0: All right, Wrestling with Theology fans, this is Pastor Doug Minton, and we are standing in the confessional corner this week looking at the close of the commandments. Now, in the small catechism, Luther has it just listed at the end, the close of the commandments. In the large catechism, he has the close of the commandments, but he also takes it as an appendix to the first commandment that the force given to Commandments 2 through 10 come from the appendix attached to the first commandment, really giving us the understanding that if we could keep the first commandment, the rest of them would not be needed. That is a wonderful way to look at the Ten Commandments. If we could just keep the first one, we usually work from the bottom up and want to say, well, okay, 9 and 10, well, I can't necessarily help that because that's human nature. That's sinful and all of that, and I can't really help that. But, you know, I don't lie or I don't deceive by God's name. I don't steal. I don't commit adultery. I haven't murdered anyone. I respect my parents and authorities. You know, we work up from the bottom. But God says, no, if you could keep the top one, you wouldn't need the bottom ones. Let's look at it from the small catechism first. The close of the commandments. What does God say about all these commandments? He says, I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. Exodus 20, five and 6. What does this mean? God threatens to punish all who break these commandments. Therefore, we should fear His wrath and not do anything against them. But He promises grace and every blessing to all who keep these commandments. Therefore, we should also love and trust in Him and gladly do what He commands. Truly, as God is summarizing all the commandments up in these couple of verses, that the idea is that we honestly, truly love and trust in Him. Therefore, all of the explanations of the commandments have said we should fear and love God. We should have that trust in God above all things, going back to the first commandment. <clears throat> so as we look in the large catechism, we begin in paragraph 30 of the large catechism, looking at, looking at it from the Concordia, the Lutheran Confessions, the Reader's Guide of the Book of Concord, We are on page 362. And again, we have the verses over again from Exodus 20. I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Exodus 20, verses 5 and 6. These words relate to all the commandments, as we shall learn later. But they are joined to this chief commandment because it is most important that people get their thinking straight first. For where the head is right, the whole life must be right, and vice versa. Learn, therefore, from these words how angry God is with those who trust in anything but Him. And again, learn how good and gracious He is to those who trust and believe in Him alone with their whole heart. Deuteronomy 6.5 His anger does not stop until the fourth generation of those who hate Him. He says this so you will not live in such security and commit yourself to chance like people with brute hearts who think that it makes no great difference how they live. On the other hand, his blessing and goodness may reach many thousands. He is a God who will not overlook that people turn from him. He will not stop being angry until the fourth generation, even until they are utterly exterminated. Therefore, he is to be feared and not to be despised. Deuteronomy 10.20 One of these times where we see this holding out in the history of the world, and especially in the history of God's people, Israel, is the fracturing of the kingdom, the dividing of the kingdom between north and south, between Jeroboam the first in Israel and Rehoboam the son of Solomon in Judah. Jeroboam causes the people to fall away and God pronounces the curse through the prophet that Jeroboam then kills, that no kingdom, no dynasty in the northern kingdom, because they have turned away after Baal, after the golden calves, and all of the other things that were brought into the worship, no dynasty would last past the fourth generation. And as you read through First and Second Kings, and you follow especially the northern kingdom many of them don't even last to a second generation they are done very quickly with one king but there is one dynasty that lasts to the fourth generation that is the omri dynasty king omri then king ahab which you would think god would let go there but it is actually ahab's grandson That is the one where the dynasty ends, and that is through the shedding of blood from Jehu. Now, all of this to say, this shows us that God is true in understanding of what his anger and hatred is. It is a limited thing, but it is a total thing. To the fourth generation, Luther also says, until they are exterminated taking Ahab's line in the northern kingdom. After Jehu becomes king, after killing the current king, he then kills everybody else in the family, very similarly to the way many of the other dynasties were eradicated, is that the new king killed everybody in the family of the previous king. It wasn't just, we'll just kill the king, we'll just take over. They wanted to get rid of all the rivals for that so God also looks to get rid of all the rivals in our lives and that anger is limited he says to the third or fourth generation as compared to the thousands for his blessings and grace but it is total in that when we are condemned to hell that is it there is no second chance there is no way to work your way out of hell there is no escape. That is the total devastation of the wrath of God. All right, we pick back up in paragraph 35. He has also made this known in all history, as the scriptures abundantly show in daily experience still teaches. For from the beginning he has utterly uprooted all idolatry. Because of idolatry he has uprooted both heathen people and Jewish people. To this day he overthrows all false worship so that all who remain therein must finally perish, as in Second Chronicles 7, 19 and 20. Proud, powerful, and rich men of the world are still to be found. They boast defiantly of their mammon. They utterly disregard whether God is angry at them or smiles on them. They dare to withstand his wrath, yet they shall not succeed. Before they are aware of it, they shall be wrecked. With all in which they trusted. All others have perished like this who have thought themselves more secure or powerful. Such hard heads imagine that God overlooks and allows them to rest in security, or that He is entirely ignorant or cares nothing about such matters. Therefore, God must deal a smashing blow and punish them, so that He cannot forget their sin until their children's children. In that way, everyone may take note and see that this is no joke to Him. These are the people he means when he says those who hate me, Exodus 20, verse 5, i.e. those who persist in their defiance and pride. Whatever is preached or said to them, they will not listen. When they are rebuked in order that they may learn to know themselves and make amends before the punishment begins, they become mad and foolish. They rightly deserve wrath, as we see daily in bishops and princes now. So this total destruction and extermination, Of those who hate him. It is truly those who have hardened their hearts so that they will not hear the word of God. They will not hear the reproof because it doesn't really matter. As Luther says, they don't care whether God's smiling on them or angry at them. God is inconsequential because they have security in what they have until they find out that that is not really secure at all. And that comes when the punishment of God is meted out against them and done in a very dramatic, total fashion. But now we turn the page in the verses, starting in paragraph 39. But as terrible as these threatenings are, so much more powerful is the consolation in the promise. For those who cling to God alone should be sure that he will show them mercy. In other words, he will show them pure goodness and blessing, not only for themselves, but also to their children and their children's children, even to the thousandth generation and beyond that. This ought certainly to move and impel us to risk our hearts in all confidence with God, Hebrews 4.16 and 10.19-23 if we wish all temporal and eternal good. For the Supreme Majesty makes such outstanding offers and presents such heartfelt encouragements and such rich promises. Looking at either of the Hebrews passages, we have Abraham being listed here, and Abraham being shown as the one through whom the blessing comes. And it is not just for Abraham's children, but every family of the earth will be blessed through his seed every family does not matter whether they descend from him or do not descend from him they will still be blessed for those who are faithful like abraham so that goes on forever there is no end to that promise because that promise in Christ cannot have an end. Because if there was an end to the promises in Christ, you know there would be an end to what we can possibly imagine heaven and glory to be like. And we have always seen through the scriptures that heaven is far beyond what we can possibly even imagine. That there is no end. It is everlasting life that we seek With God in heaven. All right, we continue on in paragraph 41. Therefore, let everyone seriously take this passage to heart, lest it be regarded as though a man had spoken it. For you, it is a question of eternal blessing, happiness, and salvation, or of eternal wrath, misery, and woe. What more would you have or desire than God so kindly promising to be yours with every blessing and to protect and help you in all need? But unfortunately, Here's the failure. The world believes none of this, nor regards it as God's word. For the world sees that those who trust in God and not in mammon suffer care and want, and that the devil opposes and resists them. They do not have money or favor or honor, and besides can scarcely support life. On the other hand, those who serve mammon have power, favor, honor, possessions, and every comfort in the eyes of the world. For this reason, these words must be understood to speak against the appearance of such things. We must consider that they do not lie or deceive, but must come true. Reflect for yourself, or investigate and tell me, those who have used all their care and diligence to gather great possessions and wealth, what have they finally gained? You will find that they have wasted their toil and labor, or even though they have amassed great treasures, they have been dispersed and scattered. Luke 12, 16-21 so they themselves have never found happiness in their wealth, and afterward it never reached the third generation. You will find plenty of examples in all histories, also in the memory of aged and experienced people. Just watch and ponder them. Saul was a great king, chosen by God and a godly man. But when he was established on his throne, he let his heart wander from God and put his trust in his crown and power. 1 Samuel 9-13 through then he had to perish with all he had, so that not even his children remained, 1 Samuel 31. David, on the other hand, was a poor, despised man, hunted down and chased, so that he did not feel his life was secure anywhere, 1 Samuel chapters 19-29. to Yet he had to survive in spite of Saul and become king, Second Samuel 2. For these words of the promise had to abide and come true, since God cannot lie or deceive Titus 1:2. Just let not the devil and the world deceive you with their show, which indeed remains for a time, but finally is nothing. Let us then learn well the first commandment, that we may see how God will tolerate no overconfidence nor any trust in any other object. We will see how he requires nothing greater from us than confidence from the heart for every good. Then we may live right and straightforward and use all the blessings that God gives, just as a shoemaker uses his needle, awl, and thread for work and then lays them aside. Or we may behave like a traveler using an inn, food, and bed only to meet his present need. Each person may do this in his calling according to God's order, and without allowing any of these things to be his lord or idol. This is enough about the first commandment, which we have had to explain at length since it is of chief importance." For as said earlier, where the heart is rightly set toward God, Deuteronomy 32, 46, and this commandment is observed, all the other commandments follow. If we could keep the first commandment, we would have no problem with the other nine. And Luther says, that is all we need to know about the first commandment right now. And that is very true. That is all we need to know. And now we flip over to the end of of the Ten Commandments in the large catechism. We are now in paragraph 311 on page 395 in Concordia. Now that we have looked at the appendix to the first commandment, seeing that all the rest of them follow from that commandment, now we see the conclusion of everything that Luther has to say about all ten commandments. So picking up in paragraph 311... Now we have the Ten Commandments, a summary of divine teaching about what we are to do in order that our whole life may be pleasing to God. Everything that is to be a good work must arise and flow from and in this true fountain and channel. So apart from the Ten Commandments, no work or thing can be good or pleasing to God, no matter how great or precious it is in the world's eyes. Let us see now that our great saints can boast of their spiritual orders and their great mighty works. They have invented and set up these things up, while they let these commandments go, as though they were far too insignificant or had long ago been perfectly fulfilled. I am of the opinion indeed that here one will find his hands full and will have enough to do to keep these commandments, meekness, patience, love toward enemies, chastity, kindness, and other such virtues and their implications, Galatians 5, 22-23 But such works are not of value and make no display in the world's eyes. For these are not peculiar and proud works. They are not restricted to particular times, places, rites, and customs. They are common, everyday, household works that one neighbor can do for another. Therefore, they are not highly regarded. One of the things that happened in the Middle Ages is that truly, because of the scholastics, because of the monks and the nuns and all of the teaching thereof, the Ten Commandments were set aside, and all of these other things put forward. And that you had to be a monk or a nun or a priest in order to truly be following God's will. They despised the everyday household normal works. That normal people, well, they might eventually get to heaven one day. But it was for the real Christians. That was what heaven was for. And Luther says, no, no, no. If you really want to understand God's will and the law, it is the focus on the everyday, the normal things that one person can do for another. That is what is pleasing in God's sight. We continue on in paragraph 314. But the other works cause people to open their eyes and ears wide. Men aid this effect by the great display, expense, and magnificent buildings with which they adorn such works, so that everything shines and glitters. There they waft incense, they sing and ring bells, they light tapers and candles so that nothing else can be seen or heard. For when a priest stands there in a surplus garment embroidered with gold thread or a layman continues all day upon his knees in church, that is regarded as a most precious work, which no one can praise enough. But when a poor girl tends a little child and faithfully does what she is told, that is considered nothing. For what else should monks and nuns seek in their cloisters? Look, is not this a cursed overconfidence of those desperate saints who dare to invent a higher and better life and a state than what the Ten Commandments teach? To pretend, as we have said, that this is an ordinary life for the common man, but theirs is for saints and perfect ones? The miserable blind people do not see that no person can go far enough to keep one of the Ten Commandments as it should be kept. Both the Apostles' Creed and the Lord's Prayer must come to our aid, as we shall hear. By them, power and strength to keep the commandments is sought and prayed for and received continually. Therefore, all their boasting amounts to as much as if I boasted and said, to be sure, I don't have a penny to make payment with, but I will confidently try to pay ten florins. He says, the miserable people do not see that there is nothing higher or greater than the Ten Commandments which is why then he links the Ten Commandments to the Apostles' Creed, to the Lord's Prayer, because the Ten Commandments accuse us that we cannot uphold God's law, that we cannot be right in God's eyes. The Apostles' Creed shows us what we are to believe, and sometimes those things are quite hard to believe. But then in the Lord's Prayer... We pray for the strength to be able to do what we're supposed to do and to believe what we are supposed to believe so that we may truly be able to call ourselves God's children as we call Him our Father. All the rest of it is boasting as saying, I don't have a penny to my name, but I will definitely pay this great amount. Well, if you have nothing, Where is your boasting coming from? That is Luther's point about the monks and the nuns. We continue on in paragraph 317. All this I say and teach so that people might get rid of the sad misuse that has taken such deep root and still clings to everybody. In all the states upon earth they must get used to looking at these commandments only and to be concerned about these matters." For it will be a long time before they will produce a teaching or a state equal to the Ten Commandments, because they are so high that no one can reach them by human power. Whoever does reach them is a heavenly, angelic person, far above all holiness of the world. Just occupy yourself with them. Try your best. Apply all power and ability. You will find so much to do that you will neither seek nor value any other work or holiness." Let this be enough about the first part of the common Christian doctrine, both for teaching and urging what is necessary. In conclusion, however, we must repeat the text that belongs here. We have presented this already in the first commandment in order that we may learn what, God, what pains God requires us so that we may learn to teach and do the Ten Commandments. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Again, Exodus 20, verses 5 and 6. As we have heard above, this appendix was primarily attached to the first commandment, yet it was laid down for the sake of all the commandments, since all of them are to be referred and directed to it. Therefore I have said that this should also be presented to and taught to the young, Then they may learn and remember it, and may see what must prove and compel us to keep these Ten Commandments. This part is to be regarded as though it were specially added to each command, so that it dwells in and runs through them all. Now there is included in these words, as said before, both an angry, threatening word and a friendly promise. These are to terrify and warn us. They are also to lead and encourage us to receive and highly value His Word as a matter of divine sincerity. For God Himself declares how much He is concerned about it and how rigidly He will enforce it. He will horribly and terribly punish all who despise and transgress His commandments. Also, He declares how richly He will reward, bless, and do all good to those who hold them in high value and gladly do and live according to them. So God demands that all our works proceed from a heart that fears and regards God alone. From such fear the heart avoids everything that is contrary to His will, lest it should move Him to wrath. And on the other hand, the heart also trusts in Him alone and from love for Him does all He wants. For He speaks to us as friendly as a Father and offers us all grace and every good. This is exactly the meaning and true interpretation of the first and chief commandment from which all the others must flow and proceed. So this word, you shall have no other gods before me, Exodus 20 verse 3, in its simplest meaning states nothing other than this demand, you shall fear, love, and trust in me as your only true God. For where there is a heart set in this way before God, that heart has fulfilled this commandment and all the other commandments. On the other hand, whoever fears and loves anything else in heaven and upon earth will keep neither this nor any of the other commandments. So then all the scriptures have everywhere preached and taught this commandment, aiming always at these two things, fear of God and trust in Him. The prophet David especially does this throughout the Psalms. As when he says the Lord takes pleasure in those who fear Him and those who hope in His steadfast love, Psalm 147, 11. He writes as if the entire commandment were explained by one verse, as if to say, "The Lord takes pleasure in those who have no other gods." So the first commandment is to shine and give its splendor to all the others. Therefore you must let this declaration run through all the commandments. It is like a hoop and a wreath joining the end to the beginning and holding them all together so that it be continually repeated and not forgotten, as the second commandment says, so that we fear God and do not take his name in vain for cursing, lying, deceiving, and other ways of leading ministry or trickery. But we may make proper use and good use of his name by calling upon him in prayer, praise, and thanksgiving, derived from love and trust according to the first commandment. In the same way, such fear, love, and trust is to drive and force us not to despise his word, but gladly to learn it, hear it, value it wholly, and honor it. And so, as we'll see in a second, he goes through all the commandments in this way, that this appendix to the first, this close of the commandments, should truly run through everything. And this is one of the great parts of this portion of the large catechism, is there's not much need for interpretation and exposition on it. Luther lays it out very clearly, very plainly. So I'm going to finish off the rest of the conclusion of the commandments without any further wording because it is right there laid out plain and simple. Picking back up in paragraph 327. So this teaching continues through all the following commandments toward our neighbor. Everything is to flow from the first commandment's power. We honor father and mother, masters and all in authority, and are subject and obedient to them, not for their own sake, but for God's sake. You are not to regard or fear father or mother, nor should you do or skip anything because you love them. But note what God would have you do, what he will quite surely demand of you, If you skip that, you have an angry judge. But if you do the work, you have a gracious father. Again, do your neighbor no harm, injury, or violence, or in any way oppress him with regard to his body, wife, property, honor, or rights. All these things are commanded in their order, even though you may have a chance and cause to do wrong, and no person would rebuke you. But do good to all men, Galatians 6.10. Help them and promote their interest in every way and wherever you can, purely out of love for God and to please Him. Do this in the confidence that He will abundantly reward you for everything. Now you see how the first commandment is the chief source and fountainhead that flows into all the rest. Note again, all return to that first commandment and depend upon it. So beginning and end are fastened and bound together. This is always profitable and necessary to teach to the young people. Admonish them and remind them of it, so that they may be brought up not only with blows and compulsion like cattle, but in the fear and reverence of God. Let this be considered and laid to heart that these things are not human games, but are the commandments of the divine majesty. He insists on them with great seriousness. He is angry with and punishes those who despise them. On the other hand, he abundantly rewards those who keep them. In this way, there will be a spontaneous drive and a desire gladly to do God's will. Therefore, it is not meaningless that it is commanded in the Old Testament that we should write the Ten Commandments on our walls and corners, yes, even on our garments, Deuteronomy 6, 8, and 9. This is not for the sake of merely having them written in these places and making a show of them. The Jewish people did that. But it is so we might have our eyes constantly fixed on them. We should have them always in our memory. Then we might do them in all our actions and ways. Then everyone may make them his daily exercise in all cases, in every business and transaction, as though they were written in every place wherever he would look, indeed wherever he walks or stands. Then there would be enough opportunity, both at home, in our own house, and abroad with our neighbors, to do the Ten Commandments, so that no one would need to run far to find them. From this it again appears how highly these Ten Commandments are to be exalted and extolled above all estates, commandments, and works that are taught and done apart from them. For here we can boast and say, Let all the wise people and saints step forth and produce, if they can, a single work like these commandments. God insists on these with such seriousness. He commands them with His greatest wrath and punishment. Besides, he adds such glorious promises to them that he will pour out upon us all good things and blessings. Therefore, they should be taught above all others and be valued precious and dear as the highest treasure given by God. So far, Luther in the large catechism. And again, plainly and simply, everything flows from fear love, and trust in God. Knowing that breaking these commandments brings His wrath, fulfilling them brings the promise of steadfast love. Yes, as Luther says, try your best, live up to your ability, but understand that you will never, ever measure up to these commandments. That is why God gives us the creed, and the Lord's prayer to supplement us. Not that doing these things, because there is nothing in there to do, but these things show us the promise being fulfilled as we'll begin to see next week. But until then, this is Pastor Doug Minton thanking you for being here in the confessional corner with me, thanking you for this Longer than normal edition, but I did not want to break this up into two parts to lengthen it out some more and make it a more manageable size. But again, it is all there to help you to wrestle with the theologies around you, especially those that try to tell you that there are other and better things to do than try to keep the Ten Commandments. But then again, what God has given us, we should look at. Amen.